guys, welcome to another episode of Colored Red. My name's Laura, and this is a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime. Um, what I'm going to be talking about today is a case that's got a couple coincidences this month. One coincidence is that it involves the same last name as a last name from my historical murders case for this month. And another coincidence is that the anniversary for this case is going to be on Monday. I'm recording this on Saturday, March 30th, and the anniversary for this case is April 1st, 2011. Um, So it's going to be the eight-year anniversary for that on Monday. And this case is about the murder of... Kenya Monhe and the assault of Lydia Tillman by a man named Travis Forbes. And I'm just going to jump right into it. It's April 1st, 2011, and it's just starting to warm up in Colorado exactly like it is now, and spring is just starting to limp along. The days are longer with the sun setting around 7 p.m., and the city is beginning to shake off the winter blues. And everyone's starting to head out on the town to enjoy warmer days and slightly warmer evenings that can still get below freezing. Kenya Monhe and her friends are getting ready to go to the club. And this is an activity that they had been doing for years, despite the fact that they were all under the age of 21. Kenya wasn't too wild. Um, She taught a Sunday school class at her local church that she organized completely herself. And she was working on going to college where she was getting good grades. She was popular. She dreamed of one day having a career in broadcast journalism. And her beauty and outgoing personality would have been a perfect fit for that job. Kenya did her makeup and hair, and she slipped into a short dress and high heels. It's a process that a lot of young women can relate to, as you fill in a small purse with your lip gloss and your money, and you anticipate the night ahead. Kenya and her friends all had fake IDs, and they set out on the town imagining their night of drinking and dancing. What would happen that night would set events into motion that uncovered one of Denver's most depraved and unhinged residents, hiding in plain sight. A man who could steal and lie and rape and murder, but who could also bake granola bars and run marathons and convince people to really do almost anything for him. Kenya went missing on April 1st, 2011 from Denver nightclub 24K, which was down in Lodo at that time. Um, My Denver listeners know what Lodo is, but it means lower downtown, and it's an area notorious for clubbing and rowdiness on the weekends. It's often referred to as Brodo by locals. Kenya was only 19 years old when she went missing, as I had stated, And Kenya and her friends danced and drank while being eyed by men in this club. At some point in the night, Kenya was escorted out of the bar for being too drunk. And this bouncer ejected Kenya out of the club um, without her purse, phone, or her jacket. All of these were left with her friends inside of the bar. Her friends inside had no idea what had happened to her. And they had no idea that she was outside with no way at all of contacting them and no jacket. Later, her stepfather and friends state that they believed that she had been drugged inside the bar because Kenya was kicked out of the bar with a man that none of her friends had seen before. And this wasn't really like Kenya to go this far off the rails this early in the evening. 
and they all partied and they all had fun, but Kenya was a responsible girl who wasn't really the type of person to be ejected out of bars too often. So everyone was a bit suspicious about this detail. And this is where I'll stop and say that there's a lot of conflicting information about this case. And I've listened to three other podcasts and read most of the articles I can find online. And I watched many videos on YouTube about this case and all of them give somewhat conflicting accounts of the evening of April 1st and what went down exactly at this club. Some say that she went to the club with a group of friends that she didn't know as well as her usual group of friends. And that because of this, they weren't doing the usual group rules that a lot of women do when they go out. Like, stay together, leave together, look out for each other, that kind of stuff. Um, others say that she was with her usual group of friends. So I'm not exactly sure what this group of friends was to Kenya that night. Some reports indicate that whoever was with her there that night was suspicious that she had been drugged because she never got that drunk, as I stated. So they at least knew her to some degree. And the man that she was kicked out of the club with that night wasn't the man who ended up killing her. He was a completely different individual who I'll talk about here in a bit. So the events that took place that evening would eventually unfold, but the police are going to have to be convinced by her friends and family that Kenya is actually missing first. The morning after the evening out, no one could find Kenya. Her mother and her stepfather, who from this point on, I'll just call her father because they were close and he had essentially raised her from when she was about 10 years old. Um, they couldn't find her in her apartment and of course they couldn't get her on her phone because she didn't have her phone. And then a girl from the group that evening showed up at her parents' door with her phone and her purse that Kenya had left behind at the club. This was the point when her parents knew something was incredibly wrong. Kenya's dad grilled this girl about the events of the previous evening, which she was very hesitant to talk about because she didn't want to admit that they were out drinking underage. The parents at this point called the police, who say that Kenya is an adult and that she can go missing and that she hasn't been missing long enough to file a report, that she's probably just somewhere hungover in someone's house and that they don't need to really be doing anything about this yet. After her dad got her phone back from this girl who came to their door, he scoured her text messages. And he noticed two things. Kenya stopped texting out at about 11 p.m. And there was one incoming message that stood out to him, and for good reason. This one was from a man calling himself Travis, and this was his text. Hey, this is Travis, the guy from last night, white creepy van. Did you get your car home okay? And so I'm going to refer to Travis's car as the creepy white van from here on out. Her dad called the number and couldn't get a hold of him. Then uh, the next evening, Travis called Kenya's dad back and they agreed to meet at the gas station where Travis says he last saw Kenya. Kenya's dad has already got this feeling that he needs to bring a gun with him when he goes to see Travis and that something is incredibly wrong with this entire situation. Kenya's mom calls the police and tells them that they should at least watch this interaction go down at this gas station, and the police agree. Kenya's dad pulls up to the gas station to find Travis Forbes, 
who is a tall, somewhat trim, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, good-looking guy. Travis tells her dad that he saw Kenya stumbling drunk down the road that night of April 1st, and that he decided to give her a ride in his van back to the club, which they found was closed when they got there. They then drove to get cigarettes at a local convenience store, and that convenience store is this gas station that they're standing in. And they found that the convenience store was also closed, at which point Travis says Kenya bummed a cigarette off of a homeless man standing nearby. Travis then let Kenya call her friends using his phone. And then Travis claims that Kenya left and walked off with the homeless man, who he will later say was a young Asian man named Dan. The police approached this interaction between Kenya's dad and Travis at the gas station that they had been watching from afar, and they asked Travis a couple of questions, and Travis tells police that he went to spend the night at his girlfriend's house after Kenya supposedly wandered off with this homeless man smoking cigarettes. The police leave with nothing to really go on, and Travis turns to shake Kenya's dad's hand. Her dad will later remark that Travis was trembling and shaking, and he could feel Travis trembling when he shook his hand. Travis would swing during this conversation in between, bursting into tears almost, regretting that he didn't stay with Kenya that night, and he would kind of go back and forth between that and being incredibly calm and acting incredibly disconnected from the entire situation. Kenya's dad would also later say that in that very moment, holding Travis's hand, he knew that Travis was the man who had abducted Kenya. So who is Travis Forbes? So when Travis was 17, he broke into 16 different Fort Collins homes and businesses and stole more than $1,500 worth of money and merchandise and underwear from these homes. Searches of his room after they eventually came to his house to search for these stolen goods would turn up vandalized pairs of women's underwear. And I'm not exactly sure how you vandalize underwear, but one can only guess. He was still on probation for this when he was arrested for criminal harassment in 1998, and then he broke probation again by carrying a knife in 1999 and violated curfew for his probation 43 different times. He was sent to community corrections at this point. In 2004, he was caught throwing rocks at two women joggers in a Highlands ranch, and he hit them, and he was arrested and charged with assault for just standing there throwing rocks at women who were jogging. He pled guilty to a lesser charge of harassment, and he spent only a month in jail for this. So to find out more about Travis Forbes, I listened to an interesting podcast called The First Degree, and what they do in this podcast is interview people who knew or interacted with the people in the case that they're covering. Um, and the people that they talk to about Travis Forbes and who knew him somehow, usually because they worked with him, described him as this incredibly intense person. They said that he could be incredibly sincere and engaging, and he could act sweet and harmless and incredibly helpful and incredibly eager to help. But he would also have these weird moments where he would stop in the middle of a conversation with someone and just stare at them deeply for reasons that no one could really pin down. You can hear this intensity in his interviews with police and his interviews with the news uh, crews. He has a clear 
arrogance and attitude behind it all as well. He had what sounds like to me to be almost a manic, methed out level of energy. And for all we know, he could have actually been on meth because he was fired from some jobs for drug use. He would attempt to engage with women and get very angry when they turned him down because a lot of women who knew him described him as way too intense and unhinged. That there always seemed to be some ulterior motive and some strange thing that he was trying to get at. And that despite being honestly an incredibly good looking dude, he had this um, inability to really talk with women and get them to do as he pleased because he won that's all he really ever wanted out of women uh they all felt uncomfortable around him co-workers who went out with him to bars describe him as a binge drinker who would drink himself under the table while everyone else was just there sipping a couple drinks at happy hour when he got drunk he would scream at people in the street and try to start fights with people who walked by and no one ever really wanted to hang out with him after he did all of this stuff which is understandable Detectives uh, back in the case um, would call Travis's girlfriend who corroborates his story that he went back to his girlfriend's house after supposedly watching Kenya walk off with this man. The girlfriend would later be arrested for lying to police about his whereabouts that evening because he was not at her house at all that night. So in the midst of trying to figure out where Kenya went, the police get a lead that launches the case into a full swing. The owner of a local bakery, who had been letting Travis rent space in the bakery to make homemade granola bars that he sold, had become suspicious that someone was stealing money from the bakery. She started going through the video surveillance from inside the bakery, and she finds Travis in the videos going through her office and walking around wearing large plastic cleaning gloves. He sort of walks around, and he's seen shuffling stuff around, and he's also seen pulling the cords out of the security cameras. She called the police, the owner of this bakery called the police, who looked further into these recordings to see a very creepy video. Travis is seen in these recordings wandering around the bakery with the cleaning gloves, as I said, and carrying... A huge jug of bleach, which will come to be sort of his signature, despite not being involved with any cleaning in this bakery. And I'll have to say that in this bakery, he made the homemade granola bars. He made gluten-free homemade granola bars. So I don't know if you can think of a more Colorado activity than that. What's more chilling is he's seen pulling in a giant cooler that has been taped shut. And this cooler is huge. It's like five feet long by like two feet wide, two feet high. It's this gigantic cooler. It's been taped shut with duct tape. So I guess he's trying to keep his granola bars from escaping out of this cooler. Probably not. He wheels the cooler into the bakery during the daylight hours, so he's wheeling this in on a big old cart that is used to wheel in heavy objects, and he's doing this during the daylight working hours, by the way, with people working there in the bakery that day. And he places the entire cooler taped shut into the freezer of the bakery. Travis is then seen burning items in a metal barrel out in the back of the bakery, So just a pro tip, dear listeners, big red flag if your co-worker is outside burning clothing and things inside of a big metal barrel outside of your workplace. 
the police at this point arrest Travis for the theft of the money from the bakery. And of course, they ask him about Kenya. He relates them a similar story to the one that he told Kenya's dad, that he picked her up in his creepy white van to be a nice guy, and that she wandered off with a homeless Asian man named Dan. Here's parts of that interview. She put her arm through his arm, like, while they were, while they were sitting there smoking. And they spoke Spanish. And they walked off, and that's it. That was the last, that was it, and I went home. And that's the last you see of it? Yes. There is a video footage of this interview, and if you watch Travis during it, when he answers no to the question of whether or not or not he killed Kenya, you could actually see him nodding yes. So, kind of an interesting little thing you can see there. So by the time the police have seen this video at the bakery and brought Travis in, the cooler is no longer in the freezer, and there's nothing in the cooler that they end up actually finding somewhere else in the bakery. They can smell a very distinct smell of bleach inside of this cooler, and they swab wherever they can trying to find anything at all. And they focus on the drain area, which is where a lot of debris in coolers can get caught and it isn't really washed away with cleaning. It's sort of a difficult area to clean. The police will later indicate that a very small amount of skin cells were recovered from this drain area on the cooler, but not a whole lot more is... Um, discussed about what those skin cells were, who they belonged to. They asked him what he was doing before bringing the cooler in, and he says that he was making deliveries of his granola bars. The police then asked him why he would need a rolling cart to transport this empty cooler, and he really had no reply for that. They also examined his creepy white van and noticed that it too smelled incredibly strongly of bleach and that it's been completely cleaned out. They didn't have anything to hold him at this point, no physical evidence whatsoever, so they took a DNA sample from him and they let him go. They examined his phone GPS this time and they found out that shortly before their interview, he drove all the way to Keensburg, Colorado for what he says was to visit a friend. And this is a small, barren little town about 30 miles northeast of Denver. The police at this point are scrambling to find any clue at all that they can for this case. They want to find the mysterious Asian homeless man, and they want to find pretty much anything. They travel to Keensburg, and they wander around asking if anyone has seen Travis or Kenya, and they don't really get anywhere with this. On a hunch, they pulled surveillance video of the hotels and apartment buildings around the club that Kenya and her friends were at that night. At one hotel, they see Kenya come in and use the restroom after being kicked out of the club. And at an apartment building nearby, they also see Kenya walking in with a man who is not Travis Forbes. She goes upstairs with the man and then a short time later comes back down without him and leaves. And is last seen swaying as she walks out of sight in front of the apartment building. After this is when she presumably has the run-in with Travis and his creepy white van. The man who was in the apartment says that he picked Kenya up at the club, that she didn't want to stay in his apartment with him, and that he just let her go back downstairs. And this is corroborated by this video because they don't see this man coming down with her, and she walks off on the street alone. 
so the police end up deciding that the man that she went to this apartment building with is not involved in this case and that he's telling them the truth. So the heat is on for Travis. And he makes an inexplicable decision to contact a local news agency to provide a statement that does not help his case whatsoever. As I stated before, Travis began hysterically sobbing in front of Kenya's dad at the gas station where they met up, which was a strange thing for someone to do who was supposedly just a stranger giving Kenya a ride. This news interview is weird, and Travis's bizarre behavior is weirder. He switches back and forth between nearly hysterical and calm, which again, odd for somebody who didn't know Kenya whatsoever, supposedly. He even appears to be crying at times, but he's doing that thing where he's making the noises and the facial expressions, but there's not really any tears. And it's like he doesn't understand that him crying about this doesn't really make any sense at all. The strangest part of the interview comes near the end where he actually pretends like he doesn't remember Kenya's name. Here's that. I was dropping Eddie off is when we we met uh, the missing girl. Or, um, what's her name? It's like he thinks if he acts just disconnected and uninvolved enough that he doesn't remember her name, that it'll make him look innocent after he just spent the interview pretending to cry about a woman who he doesn't even remember the name of. And whose name is all over the news, this was huge news this time, and whose name has been told to him by police and by Kenya's dad many, many times. So he knows her freaking name. Kenya's dad, by the way, and this is just heartbreaking, is spending his evenings in his days, really, dumpster diving in Denver looking for Kenya's body because he feels deep down that she's dead and that he needs to find her. So Travis skips town. He borrows the car of one of his friends, who some sources say was an ex-girlfriend of his, and he leaves the state And here is where fate or dumb luck or intuition or whatever you want to call it really comes into play. The friend whose car he borrowed reports the car stolen and a cop in Austin, Texas notices the Colorado plates and just gets a weird feeling. He runs the plates and he finds out that the car is stolen and he pulls over Travis and arrests him. In Austin, Texas, Travis is interviewed by Nash Garul, a Denver detective on this case, um, and he's interviewed by him for several hours, and he cannot get a confession from Travis. Travis is then sent back to Denver, where he's in the hands of police again, and inexplicably, his ex-girlfriend or friend drops the charges for the stolen car. So he's released yet again. And Travis heads right back to Keensburg. He has surveillance on him now, and he doesn't exit his creepy white van, but the police know that there's something going on with Keensburg, and they have no idea what it is. Travis now heads to Fort Collins to stay with his dad, and Travis had moved from Fort Collins to Denver about a year prior to all of this. He spends his time there drinking at local bars and scouting out local college girls, something that doesn't sit right with Denver police at all. And they warned the Fort Collins Police Department about him being in town. They're also sort of watching him and his every move. Locals indicate that Travis spent many evenings um, getting hammered and being incredibly belligerent. He would stand on street corners screaming and yelling at people. And he would do this thing 
where he would juggle glowing balls as this way of trying to attract drunk women leaving bars. If you can imagine this scene of him outside of a bar juggling these glowing balls. I don't know. He was a huge show-off. And you can probably think of a blowhard like this in your life who does this kind of stuff. So Travis is now in Fort Collins. And on July 4th, 2011... A woman named Lydia Tillman heads out for an evening to watch fire, the fireworks celebration in town, and she's followed home and attacked by a man inside of her home. She was raped, strangled, and beaten to the point of completely shattering her jaw. She was left for dead in her apartment after being drenched in bleach, and luckily, in, in this weird, idiotic attempt to finish the job, he set her apartment on fire with her inside. Lydia crawled to the window and leapt out of her second-story window to run into the ambulance that was now just pulling up because of this fire that someone reported. The ambulance sees her lying in the lawn after jumping out of the window, and she's completely drenched in bleach. Lydia survives this attack, and she could muster out that she didn't know the attacker before she actually ended up suffering a stroke in the ambulance from her beatings. At the hospital, she was put into a medically induced coma for about five weeks, and she was hanging on for dear life. Police already clued into the fact that her body had been drenched in bleach because Travis had this thing for bleach, and they had been watching Travis in Fort Collins, but apparently not on this night, and they decided that there could be a connection. During this time, the debris and blood from her attacker under her fingernails that had not had the bleach reach it was sent in for testing. On July 10th, this about six days later, now over three months since Kenya Monhe went missing, they had already been secretly watching Travis Forbes because they suspected him due to all the bleach on Lydia Tillman. They're watching Travis approaching women on the street. They're watching him doing this glowing ball juggling crap. And they watch him pull a backpack with the change of clothes out of a bush, which he would go back to throughout the night to change his clothing and head to a new bar or area and stalk more women. They arrested him stalking a woman near Colorado State University. And during this 24-hour arrest, technicians at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation are working through the night to test this DNA sample. And after 10 p.m. on July 11th, as Travis is mere hours from being released from jail, they get a hit on the DNA. And to absolutely no one's surprise, it's Travis Forbes. Travis was, of course, then charged with the attack on Lydia Tillman, and strangely enough, he immediately confesses to the assault on Lydia Tillman, and he also confesses to the murder of Kenya Monhe, and tells police his version of what happened that night after Kenya Monhe left this club and left the apartment of this other man. Travis sees Kenya, drunk, walking around in Lodo. He picked Kenya up and tells her he'll drive her back to the club because he's just such a nice guy like that. He says Kenya fell asleep in his creepy white van, and he then proceeded to rape her. She woke up during this, and she started fighting him. And at this point, he strangled her, and he placed her body in the cooler that he had in the back of the creepy white van. So, rigor starts setting in fairly soon after he strangles her to death. 
and he places her body in this cooler and he couldn't shut the cooler because her arms are going into rigor and they keep popping the lid open of the cooler that she's been stuffed in. So this is when he brings in the tape and he tapes the whole cooler shut. Before he taped her body into the cooler, he cleaned her body with bleach and he cleans himself with bleach and he cleans the interior of the van with bleach. He kept her body in the cooler in his van for a day before putting her inside the freezer at the bakery, still inside the cooler. Here he burned her clothing in the barrel outside of the bakery, and he sent the text message to Kenya's phone the next day in some attempt to make it seem like he gave her a ride, but this text message would just lead everyone right to him. He has this habit of trying to be clever, and it just doesn't really work out very well for him. After his confession, he makes this strange plea deal where he agrees to show them where Kenya's body is and plead guilty as long as he's kept off of death row and that he's not charged with any sex crimes. He tells police that he doesn't want to be labeled as a sex offender and then go to jail and that he's afraid of being raped in prison. And he hints at this time that there are also many other victims, which I don't know if he's just trying to flex about possibly other victims or if this is true at all. I'm not sure. Police know that he's going away for life. So to find Kenya, they ask Kenya's parents and they ask Lydia Tillman's parents and they agree to this plea deal. Travis takes officers to, you guessed it, Keensburg, Colorado. He has them pull off to the side of the road and exit their cars and walk a bit down into a ravine when suddenly he lets out this loud shriek of forced or fake or maybe partially real anguish in front of these stunned officers. He then tells an officer that that officer is standing right on top of where Kenya is buried. So he's a drama queen. He loves being the center of attention, and in his interview, he's oddly upset about this burial of her, and he's acting like he thinks people should act when they want to pretend to be remorseful about something. And here's that audio. I wanted to bury her either next to some water or next to some trees. Why is that? Because that's where I would like to be buried. If somebody had killed me, I would hope that they would bury me next to something nice and just dump me in some dumpster. So you find this spot. Why did you pick there? Because of the trees. Okay. And you, how long do you think you dug for? Uh, it wasn't very long. I was actually surprised. I was worried that it was so late that I wouldn't have enough time. Okay. But I dug that all fast. Were you actually inside the hole? Yeah. And that's why you were able to tell me that it went shoulder shoulder depth. I left I left my credit card inside the hole. Why'd you do that? It was not that I wanted to get caught. It wasn't like I was trying to brag that I did it. Because I knew that if it was ever going to be found, holy shit, that body credit card. Those credit cards have embroidered lettering on them. I just figured it was right. I figured that if you found the body, that I should be caught. 
He's trying to minimize the crime and he's trying to humanize himself in a way that makes him appear like a robot trying to imitate human emotion. After digging in this area, they find Kenya about four feet down. She's taped with duct tape in a fetal position and she's draped in a tarp. Travis is sentenced to life in prison, but in accordance with this plea deal, he's not charged with any sex crimes, and he sobbed dramatically at both of his trials. In interviews with Travis, he says he is a sociopath and that he may have killed other women. In fact, the interviews that Travis Forbes has about the Kenya Monhe murder and Lydia Tillman cases have been used in multiple papers as an example of what psychologists call a violent psychopath. He calls what he did to Kenya a mistake, which is his way of distancing himself from what happened and acting like it was all this big accident that was completely out of his control. True psychopaths will not try to be accountable for their behavior. They'll shift the responsibility of that to somebody else and they'll minimize their crimes. If it wasn't for Lydia Tillman and her strength in all of this, Travis would not have been caught. Had she died in her house, the DNA evidence under her fingernails would have likely been destroyed in the fire, so her strength and will to live here is remarkable. Lydia was still in a coma when Forbes was arrested. Um, She finally regained consciousness after five weeks when they pulled her out and she had somewhat healed. And when she did, her anger was palpable. She repeatedly attempted to tear away the tubes feeding her stomach And she tried to dismantle a bolt in her head that monitored her brain pressure. Uh, Only two days after she emerged from her coma, Lydia began writing the statement that she would eventually submit to the court at Forbes' sentencing on September 27th. Standing at her father's side in a packed courtroom of friends and family supporters, Tillman stared directly at Travis Forbes, who sat in chains only a few feet away. In her statement, she wrote, Travis Forbes, you caused me no harm. My spirit, my soul, and my mind remain untouched. May you find peace in this life. It had taken her over an hour to compose these three sentences, which she wrote by hand on a piece of notebook paper, and which were read by her father because she was kind of having to relearn how to talk after her whole incident. She later told reporters in a written statement that it was her intention to find strength in her heart to forgive Forbes, which she did. That she felt extreme anger towards him, but that she felt sad for him too. She has made an excellent recovery, and she now teaches yoga in Fort Collins and is doing amazingly with her life, more so than anybody, a lot of people I know could say. So everybody, honestly, be careful. Men like Travis Forbes are probably familiar to most women out there. It's it's always hard to describe to guys what it's like to try to fend off a guy being weird at a bar if you find yourself alone as a woman at a bar. It's a strange sort of dance between not inciting him while also rejecting him and making that clear. It seems weird to keep the feelings of a dude who's talking to you in mind because telling a guy to fuck off should just be that simple but telling a guy who can't take no for an answer to fuck off could mean being attacked by him on the way to your car because he doesn't like his ego getting bruised so in public a man's afraid of getting his ego bruised and a woman is afraid of being raped or murdered 
So be safe out there. Keep track of your friends at clubs. I'm not sure if clubs and bouncers are in the habit of tossing out women without their jackets or phones or money, but this is something that needs to be addressed if this is actually happening. I know in Colorado, the liquor licensing is a nightmare, and having visibly intoxicated people in your bar could mean losing your license and your business. And clubs and bars here are very quick to push someone out who's drunk, but something needs to change to keep women and men safe out there. Kenya Monhe's family has started the Kenya Monhe Foundation, which supports families of missing victims and provides safety education, resources, and funding. There is a WordPress page for this foundation if you would like to donate or get any more information about this foundation. So thanks, guys. As always, head to Instagram at Colored Red Podcast for images and information associated with this case and for just updates about what's coming up next and what I'm working on. Um, I'm also going to do some weird, interesting Colorado facts on there and just other things that come up throughout the day. So um, until next time, guys, thanks. Thanks.